Let me read 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if indeed you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the word of God this morning again as an act of worship. We just pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and his ministry, that you would help us to be attentive and alert to what you by your spirit would say to us through the word of God. And that, Lord, you'd give us each an ear to hear what your spirit is trying to say to this part of your church through this portion of your word. So speak and teach to us now through your Holy Spirit's ministry. We ask expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what is perhaps one of the biggest threats to our spiritual lives and to our relationship with the Lord? I think you could probably summarize that in one word that indeed has got to be one of in the top threats of the spiritual life, and that is simply pride. And pride, again, understand, is really just thinking more highly of ourselves, thinking more highly of our own importance and even our own rights than what we really should. And remember, pride is what originally caused the devil to fall from his right relationship with God. And I think pride now since that time has kind of become one of the most deceptive baits that the devil tries to use to pull down God's people from time to time as well. Certainly, pride is what keeps many people even from humbly accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's what keeps many people from truly humbling themselves and receiving in their hearts what Christ has done for them. It's what keeps many religious people continuing to just be religious, moral church gatherers because in their pride, they're not willing to realize they truly need to be saved and born again of the spirit. And so they take pride in their religious routine, but it's that very pride that's going to keep them one day from eternal life because there will be many moral religious people in hell. And it's pride, sadly, that tragically from time to time hinders many Christians as well from living out biblical Christianity. And I emphasize biblical Christianity. Remember where Jesus said that we are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. And sadly, I think the devil misguides some believers and even some churches for that matter to settle for things like carnal Christianity or a compromised version of Christianity, or maybe even we might say commercialized versions of Christianity. And the devil oftentimes can misguide us. And the problem really with the church of Corinth was many of those very things as we've been seeing. They had let pagan influences and worldly patterns begin to creep into the church where there was not very much distinction and difference between them and the unsaved world that wasn't even following gods. They let the world begin to direct their standards. They let the world dictate what they did and did not do. And they allowed influences and ideologies of the world system to really govern their way of living instead of following what the spirit of God 
was directing them to do instead. And so Paul writes this correctional letter, 1 Corinthians, to really help try and redirect the church at Corinth, I believe in some ways, to what, again, we might say biblical Christianity, to try and help them really get back on track. In this section, Paul takes a strong stand, we're going to see, against pride, which was one of the major plagues in the church at Corinth, causing their challenges. Remember the background, Paul has just spoken in our prior verses about a proper way to view Christian leaders, himself, Apollos, the Apostle Peter. And and Paul has just addressed how they shouldn't be viewed as spiritual celebrities that were admired, kind of the rock stars of the church and the idols and followed in that way, but just as tools being used by God to help people spiritually to develop. Uh, And that we shouldn't, any one of us, when we serve the Lord, be doing things to be noticed or to be admired, or even appreciated for that matter, or to try and climb some spiritual ladder within the body of Christ, but just faithfully serving God, looking for God's reward eternally, and not wanting the praise of men. But Paul said in our last verses, just wanting the praise of God. Now, in verse 6, he carries on saying there, in light of that, verse 6, now these things, he says, brethren, I have figuratively in a picture, transferred to myself and Apollos, he says, for your sakes. Now, what figures of speech was Paul just using to picture, as I said, the role and the function of not only Christian leaders, but all spiritual workers for that matter? Well, we saw in the prior verses and all the way back into chapter three as well, that Paul used analogies and figures of speech, like, remember, like hardworking farmers, who would just go out and work the fields to try and bring a fruitful harvest for God's kingdom. He used the analogy of being like builders, working diligently on the job site, doing your specific task with skill to help work together with the other crew to help build the Lord's church. He used terms last week we saw like servants, and we said that word servant was a word for the under rower, who was under the deck of the ship, No recognition, working hard, just rowing at the oars, helping move things forward in any way that they could with other team members collectively. And then he also used the term in verse 1 of chapter 4 of stewards. That is just faithfully managing what was entrusted to you. It didn't belong to you. You were just trying to carry out the wishes of your master and be faithful in your stewardship. And he says, look, I've, verse 6, he says, I figuratively illustrated our lives and service in the Lord in this manner for your sakes. Paul's saying to help you have a right perspective towards us, towards me, towards Apollos, towards Peter, to help you recognize that you shouldn't picture us as successful CEOs, Uh, or uh, elite successful businessmen, or uh, high-ranking rulers, or famous celebrities. No, he says, just just like hardworking, and if you think of the analogies, kind of just Paul uses the analogy of like hardworking blue-collar guys. Think about it, farmers, builders, under-rowers. I mean, these are the descriptions that Paul uses for Christian service, just practical labor, rolling up your sleeves, showing up on the job and doing what you can to help in any way possible, putting in the work and the effort. Well, Paul says, look, I'd use those images and illustrations. He goes on to say, verse six, for your sakes, and here's the reason why, that you may learn, he says, in us, by what we've illustrated, 
not to think, he says, beyond what is written. In other words, their way of evaluating people, Paul says, should not be based in how the world characterizes people. He's saying, look, that's the problem. Stop using these worldly standards of your philosophers and your people that you idolize in culture, again, in the Greek culture. He says, don't do it the way the world esteems what's important, but he says your viewpoint should be rooted in biblical ideas. He says there, you should not think of us beyond what is written. Well, what he's referring to is the written word of God. In other words, Paul's saying, don't measure us as your spiritual leaders by worldly standards, but by biblical standards. And he's going to say, for that matter, don't measure anybody. By worldly standards, measure people by what's written in the word of God. And it's a good reminder. One of the best ways to avoid pride in our lives, as well as wrongly at times judging other people, is not to think of ideas beyond what is written in the word of God. God, help us all at times to recognize what is written is what's God's will. That is the right standard and the right measurement we should use considering ourselves and other people, not measuring people by worldly standards. And Paul says, don't measure us by the standards of the world. Measure us by God's standards because that's ultimately what matters. And he says, going on verse 6, if you do that, he says, I'm asking you to do such that none of you, he says, may become puffed up. There's a picture of pride against one another. In other words, the folks in the church at Corinth had become puffed up and inflated in their views of self-importance because they were using the standards of the world instead of the standards of God's word. And that led to them thinking that they were always right in their viewpoints because they had become puffed up and therefore they assumed everyone else must always be wrong. And pride made the church kind of begin to develop this competitive spirit the church at Corinth had become very critical in nature, in the way they would speak about other people and their attitudes. And that attitude of spiritual arrogance, Paul points out right there in the end of verse 6, had made them start to fight against one another. He says it's making you always be opposed to one another. And that's what pride does. It causes us to be contentious and critical. And look, the world's way is that way. That's the way of the world. That's what Paul's indicating. The way of the world is the way of pride. And so people always stand up against one another. They always want to fight with one another to get their way, to prove their viewpoint. That's the way of the world. What's God's way? What's the way that's written in the word of God? Well, the way of the Lord is what's found written in his word. And it tells us things like love one another, bear with one another, Forgive one another, edify and build up one another and maintain unity against one another. That's the way that's written. The way of the world is not what we're to live by. We're to live differently according to the ways of the Lord. Paul now then asks some questions going on in verse seven to kind of try and challenge now this pride within them that he was concerned about and to really try and humble their hearts. Look what he says in verse seven. The first thing he asks is he says, tell me, what makes you differ from another? So Paul says, tell me, what makes you more special, the idea is, the idea of differ, more superior than other people despite your differences? Again, the obvious answer to that is who made them differ from one another? 
God did, right? I mean, God created each and every one of them and each and every one of us and makes us uniquely different from one another by his design. It's by God's intention that he doesn't make us cookie cutter, that he makes us different, not only biologically, but all the more as well spiritually in the body of Christ. In his marvelous wisdom, God creates purposeful diversity amongst people so that we can each contribute our necessary part to help balance out and bring a more vital contribution to the overall need. The reason I am different than others and the reason that others are different from me is because that's the way God actually wants it to be. It's the way that God has intended it to be so that we might each contribute a necessary part. He's made us different for a set reason. That's why we have the unique qualities that we do. Not one of us, because of our difference, is more valuable because we're different than others or more important or special or even for that matter, even more superior. Despite what our role may be or our status or the gifting we operate in, we should never begin to think that somehow because we differ from another that that makes us somehow superior to another because from God's standard, that's not true. We're different just because that's the way God made us so that we could contribute our unique difference. And others are different not because they're inferior in their differences. They're different because God wanted them to be different. And we need them to be different to contribute the unique balances and differences that they do. So again, we all have equality in who we are. So beware. We never want to begin to think somehow there's a superiority to our lives in comparison to others. Who makes you differ more special or superior than others? And then he goes on, verse 7 to say, going on, and what do you have, he says, that you did not receive? Answer, absolutely nothing. What, What do you have in your life that you didn't receive from God? Again, by creation, God made us who we were from our birth. And then by his spirit's enablement, when we become a Christian, he deposits spiritual giftings and callings into our lives. So if you and I have some ability or some talent, some natural aptitude or some spiritual gifting, did you bring that about? No, God put that in your life. God deposited there. You simply were the recipient of God's grace And our true natural abilities and all of our spiritual enablements are something that we've just received from the Lord. And he chose to give that to us and something different to someone else. So Paul's saying, look, be realistic. He says, let it humble you if needed. He says, truly, what do you have in your life that you didn't receive from God anyway? And then he concludes verse seven saying, now, if indeed you did receive it, then why would you boast? as if you had not received it. So why would anyone rightly boast or exalt themselves before another, knowing that to be true? If we know anything I am and anything I can do is a gifting from God, it's a status that God gave me or an enablement that God entrusted to me, there's nothing really to be proud about, right? If you recognize everything I have, I receive from the Lord, then, well, then what do I really have to boast about? What do I ever have to brag about? What do we ever have to feel proud about? It doesn't make sense. It's really just becomes a form of self-deception. But yet sometimes, let's be honest, that's what pride does in our hearts. It's self-deceiving. It makes us kind of begin to almost take credit sometimes for something that is just a gift we receive from God. 
or we start thinking that we deserve admiration or we conduct ourselves in a way whereby it's like, hey, you know, I, I brought about this gifting or I've, you know, and, and we start to think something superior, special about ourselves. And Paul says, look, if everything you've received is from God, why would you boast as if it's not a gift? And he's saying that there, that's a prideful deception that the enemy has wrought in our minds. And sometimes these questions here, verse seven, are just kind of good to come back to, to help maintain a proper perspective on ourselves from time to time. And even a right attitude of humility that we would share towards one another as people. Well, Paul goes on and he now begins, you're going to see to use some irony and some sarcasm. Imagine that sarcasm, even in the Bible. Apparently it's necessary sometimes. He's going to drive home his point. He wants to confront this plague of pride. Look what he goes on to say now. He starts to get a little sarcastic and use irony in some ways. He says, verse eight, you are already full. You're already rich. Now, the picture here is how they had become self-serving and very self-sufficient in their prideful perspective towards their own self-importance. They felt that they had all they needed at this point. Paul says, it seems like that you feel you're fully equipped. You're already rich in all your spiritual capacities. You're already completely full of wealth, of spiritual knowledge. The idea Paul's implying is they, they kind of gave the impression they didn't need Paul's assistance anymore. Paul, we're full. We're spiritually rich, man. We, we don't need your help anymore. We might have for a little while, but we don't need people like you anymore. I mean, we're, we have a wealth of knowledge in the word of God. But again, keep in mind, what's one of the marks of pride? One of the marks of pride is beginning to think that we don't need others to help in our lives or we don't need others to be involved in our lives. It's kind of that self-sufficiency where we kind of just have this sense that, that we are fine. We're strong enough to stand on our own spiritually. We don't need a pastor to teach us. We don't need a church to belong to. We don't need Christian friends to keep us accountable, right? We're fine. We're, we're strong enough. We, we know enough of the Bible. I've been reading the Bible for 20 years. I don't need to have somebody else tell. I know everything about the Bible now. I've had people say that before. I know everything about the Bible now. Well, pardon me. <laughs> I mean, that's just an indication something's really off track in our lives. But this is where the Corinthians rap. Paul says, it, it seems, oh, sorry, you're so rich, you're already full. He says, you've reigned as kings. He goes on, verse eight, without us, you don't even need us. And indeed, I could wish, he says, actually that you did reign because then we might reign with you. So Paul says, boy, you seem like you're already reigning like rulers in the kingdom age. And Paul says, honestly, I wish that was true because then we'd all be in the kingdom age and I'd be reigning with you. And I wouldn't have any of the hassles that we're all still dealing with if we were all just reigning in the kingdom age already. Paul says, verse nine, for I think that perhaps God has displayed us. Notice the apostles, again, the, the established leaders in the early church. I think God's displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So Paul says he thinks perhaps God was maybe purposely displaying the humble experiences of himself and the other spiritual leaders, putting them on display so the people could truly observe and learn God's ways. He says there that they were like men condemned to death, made a spectacle, he says, among men and the angels. Now that picture there that he's describing in the language he's using 
is a picture, the spectacle of, of how conquered slaves at the end of the war would be paraded through the town after somebody conquered them. And that day when you would win a battle, the conquering king would march in front. Then his soldiers would be directly behind him as the people cheered. And then the spoils of war behind the soldiers. And then last, as Paul says, we've been displayed last. Then lastly would come the weak, humbled, conquered people of the land who were a humble spectacle because they received no admiration because they were simply a symbol of people who were humbled, broken, shamed individuals who lost all their rights and they were nothing but slaves now at this point. And Paul says, it seems perhaps that's the way God's put us on display. He's put us as the early church leaders on display, not again as celebrities, but he says, not for people to admire us, but for people to actually see in us something quite different. Again, as I've said before, sadly, this is one of the things that really concerns me today in the body of Christ is when Paul says, this is how God displayed us as early church leaders, as humble servants and slaves to help people with no rights, just our lives condemned to death. And, and yet today it seems that we kind of esteem, you know, many a times people in the body of Christ, like they're celebrities and rock stars and idols. And I mean, it's almost kind of the exact opposite, but God chose to display spiritual leaders as lowly, humble servants, more than that, slaves. And keep in mind, how did Jesus teach leadership? Jesus taught humble, sacrificial servant leadership. That's what Jesus taught. We read Jesus say in Matthew chapter 20, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, that is worldly rulers, they lord it over people. That is, they exercise their authority. They let people know, hey, I'm in charge, admire me and, and, and you know, honor me. He says, and their high officials exercise authority. But then Jesus said this, not so with you. That's not how I want people to lead spiritually. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to become first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Jesus was the most important man that ever walked this planet. And Jesus was the most servant hearted individual who's ever lived in human history. And would do the most humble, lowly things discreetly, washing feet, not even calling attention to the fact that he was doing it. He would just do it. He would just humbly serve. And Jesus says that is the form of true greatness in God's kingdom. And Paul refers to that was really kind of his life experience with the other apostles. He kind of sarcastically draws comparison, showing their problem with pride and yet his experiences. He says, verse 10, for we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, he says, but we are dishonored. So Paul says, it seems that you are so wise, like you, like you just have all the answers more than we do, he says at this point. He says, it seems to be that you're so strong, that is, you don't need any assistance spiritually anymore. You're strong enough on your own and you're distinguished where we're dishonored. Yet, though he says, me and Apollos and those who are leaders, he says, we've become fools for Christ's sake. And the idea there is he's saying, look, we're not ashamed to be considered fools in the eyes of men because we're not seeking the same things that people in the world are. And we're okay with that. He says, we're okay to be perceived 
as weak because we don't force our way in the flesh and we don't try and bully people and control people. That's okay, he says. We'll be perceived as weak. You, you think that you're strong. We'll be perceived as weak and take the road that's meek and submissive and be dishonored. And Paul then elaborates more, the humble experiences of these early church leaders. Look what he says, verse 11. He says, to this present hour, we both, look at the words he uses, hunger and thirst, lack of necessity, he says. And we're poorly clothed and beaten. We've seen that many times in our study in the book of Acts. And homeless. So Paul says, we see serving the Lord not as a luxury. We see serving the Lord as a pathway of sacrifice. Paul says that's what our lives have displayed. Paul and his missionary team, as they went church planning, apparently you can tell from the word of God, they didn't enjoy a constant life of ease and continuous comfort and no challenges and no sacrifices. In fact, part of their commitment to serve the Lord and to let their lives be useful for God, if you study what is written, not a worldly idea, but what is written in the word of God, you can tell that part of their commitment to let their lives be used by God included the need at times to go with less, to go without, to give up at times luxuries that other people around them enjoyed. I mean, consider the words again in verse 11 he uses to describe their experiences. Hunger, thirst, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless. I mean, that's convicting there. How much are we willing to make some maybe at times material sacrifices to maybe give up ease or to let go of comforts of American life that others enjoy to give ourselves more fully to usefulness to the Lord. That's a challenge for all of us that at times we would give up the ease and comforts of luxury to say, hey, if I got to give up some of that to make myself more productive and useful for God, then, then, then I'm willing to do that. It's the way of the Lord. He says, that was our experience. Paul goes on to say, verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands. So again, often Paul and his team, and we see it in the word of God, would humbly do manual work in various forms. Remember, Paul was a tent maker. And at times they would do what was necessary is they would travel from community to community, uprooting and then going into a new community, planning a new church. After a while, they would transition. They would go to another new town. And this process went on. They were never too proud to labor in some way. When they would come into town, they would set up shop. They would start working a job. They wouldn't show up and say, hey, we're here to teach the Bible. And what's the salary? That wasn't the way they worked. They would go into a community expecting nothing, asking for nothing, and would just come in and they would begin to minister and they would do whatever was necessary to humbly supply for their own needs responsibly and ministering simultaneously. And that approach certainly built respect amongst the people because they couldn't ignore. They would come into town. They would be industrious. They would be responsible like everyone else and sacrificial. And again, this was, understand, countercultural because in the Greek culture of this day, which was a very sophisticated kind of high-minded culture, manual labor was highly looked down upon. If you worked with your hands or did manual labor, I mean, that was just looked as menial and lowly and the sophisticated Greek culture kind of just looked down upon people that would do such things. 
So here's Paul coming into town and rolling up his sleeves and sweating and working in that way. But notice, Paul had no problem working with his hands to provide his own resources. He wasn't too proud to do that. He was humble enough to be willing to do that. And I think this is a good reminder looking at Paul's example as the giant spiritually that this guy was. I mean, truth be told, a lot of times it is pride that is one of the biggest deterrents and hindrances that hold people back from working at times and working with their own hands to do what they got to do to just take care of themselves responsibly. You know, more often than is necessary, people who could make money and need to make money and be responsible to make money, the excuse and pride ends up being, I'm not doing that job. I mean, I'm not doing that kind of work. You know who does that kind of way? And, and that, that sadly is what keeps people lazy and irresponsible. When the reality is, look, as God's people of all people, we should humbly realize, look, any work is dignified when it's done unto the Lord. It doesn't matter what kind of work. Work, that's why it's called work. I told my girls that the whole time they were growing up. They would you know, complain about this. As the, well, that's why it's called work. It's not called a party. It's called work. That's what it's called. And any kind of work is dignified work to provide and do what we need to do. Perhaps that's why Paul experienced some of the mockery that he goes on to describe in verse 12. Because he did this manual work. He says, being reviled. He says, but when we're reviled, we bless. Again, notice the humility. Paul says, we bless those who revile us. And he says, those who are Again, not only being reviled, sometimes we're persecuted, but we endure through it. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth, that is the trash of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Look, Paul says, people ridicule us, they look down on us, they mistreat us, treat us like trash that should be just tossed aside. But one thing that Paul understood apparently is that mistreatment is part of the process of genuine servanthood. You know, if you've never noticed before, and Paul's alluding to it here, oftentimes when you do seek to care for people, not only may they not appreciate it, but sadly, when you try and care for people, they may not only not appreciate it, sometimes they will actually mistreat you in hurtful ways as well. And Paul was no stranger to that. And when mistreated... Pride, listen, when mistreated, pride gets angry. Pride gets defensive. How dare you mistreat me when I'm doing this for you or helping you? And, and then pride sometimes will even then pull back. Well, if you're not going to appreciate what I do for you or you're going to hurt me when I'm trying to help you, then, then that's it. I'm pulling back. I'm not helping you. But what does humility do? Humility does the opposite. Humility has a different response, and that's what Paul's showing there in verse 12. He says, being reviled, we bless. We take the way of the Lord. When we're slandered, when we're criticized, we kindly try and bless in response. When we're persecuted or mistreated for doing good, he says, we endure. We just keep at it. And we take the lumps and we just keep showing love. And he says, and when we're verbally defamed and slandered wrongly, we just entreat. We keep trying to show kindness in our words and asking God to change hearts and treating the Lord to work in the situation. He says, verse 14, listen, I don't write these things to shame you. He's not trying to make you feel guilted and uh, manipulate you emotionally. He says, but rather, as my beloved children, I warn you. 
So Paul says, look, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty and feel shame. That's not why I'm being a little sarcastic here and saying these things. He said, rather, out of sincere love for your welfare, I'm actually just trying to warn you of something that I'm concerned about. Paul was trying to open their eyes to what they weren't seeing and help them rethink properly. Out of love for them, like a caring parent, he wanted to protect them from a harmful pathway that they were on. Notice he calls them my beloved children. He says, I'm just trying to use my wisdom to warn you, like a concerned parent, right, who's got a little bit more experience Out of that experience and wisdom, they warn their child for what's best for them because they want to see their child avoid error. They want to see their child get off of pathways that are destructive and not good. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verse 15. He says, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you again through the gospel. So Paul says, look, I know you have many different Bible teachers, Apollos and Cephas, and no doubt others as well. Many, many instructors, he says, that you enjoy and help teach and instruct you in spiritual knowledge. You may have 10,000 instructors. And if Paul would say that in that day, think about today, how much more? I mean, with, with the internet today and websites and YouTube and podcasts, I mean, we could have 20,000 different Bible teachers we have access to. And look, there's great value to many different instructors who can teach us truths and and help us to grow in our knowledge of God. That has its place. Christian radio, solid instruction. Yet always remember this. A teacher and a professor, would you agree, can share good information, accurate information, and yet not care about their students at all? Right? Any teacher can do that. A professor can do that. Out of duty, They can convey the information, they can share what is right, but actually not even care about their students that they're teaching. Yet the ideal thing is what? The ideal thing is when you have a teacher who instructs out of sincere love for their students, when you have a teacher who explains things and teaches out of a concern for the welfare of those that they're teaching. Kind of like, again, if you were to pick maybe the best illustration of that, where based in relationship, like when a father out of love for his children, right, instructs his children out of his concern for their welfare. That's a beautiful example. When out of love for the welfare of their children and genuine concern and recognizing a father has that relational right as well as responsibility to train his children and even to correct them when they're off track. Well, this is what Paul's alluding to here. He says, look, that's the difference between me and you there at Corinth. He says, by the grace of God, you were begotten or born again, came into God's family, into Christ Jesus through the gospel, because I brought that to you. And so in a sense, Paul's saying, God has given to us a relational dynamic. I'm not just an instructor. He says, I've kind of become from God's perspective, like a, like a father figure to you spiritually there at the church at Corinth. And Paul says, that's why this matters to me. I helped you begin your spiritual life. And he says, like a, like a heart of a father, I'm, that's why now I'm warning you and why I'm not even afraid to correct you or teach you or guide you as a father figure. I love you enough, he says, to challenge your pride right now or to correct you in a way that may be needed. I tell you, that adds a whole different dynamic to somebody's desire to listen and to learn. Paul's asking them to me, if you 
look at what he's saying. To me, it's almost like Paul's saying, look, what do you want there in Corinth? Do you want just a professor who gives you speeches? Or do you want, he says, a loving pastor and a shepherd who's concerned about your welfare and who, like a spiritual parent, is committed to the long process of not only teaching and instructing, but caring for your soul and being routinely involved to to help you. And look, just like with our children, right? Not every time you instructed them, they say, thanks, Dad. Oh, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. Yeah, you're right, Mom. I mean, that doesn't always happen. When they become adults, it starts to happen more. But in the process, right? But what's the problem there? Pride makes us resist correction. Humility makes us appreciate at times being challenged or corrected because we realize somebody loves us and that we should be willing to listen to their wisdom and receive their help. And Paul says, that's what's going on here. I'm trying to help you like a father figure here, he says, in the church in Corinth. And he says, and and your pride is keeping you from letting me help you. And that's what Paul's just trying to indicate to them. He says, verse 16, again, like a father figure, therefore I urge you, he says, imitate me. Now, I have written down there, wow. And the reason I have wow is this. You must not be given just good speeches, but you must be living pretty well in the things of the Lord if you have the courage to say to someone, imitate me. I mean, that's strong if you think about that. Paul's going to later say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul taught by the example of his life, and he encouraged people to imitate his patterns. Paul didn't just think, hey, the top thing is I need to be polished and be the church presenter. I'm the presenter. And, 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 and Paul said, no, no, that's, that's just one piece. He's saying, if I don't live in a way that people can follow and emulate a pattern and example, who cares about my presentation? Who cares about it? It's, it's invalidated. And Paul here recognized, again, what did he just use the picture of a father figure? Any good father, right? Any good father doesn't just lecture. A good father lives right as well so that his children can learn from his example. And a lot more many times is caught than is actually taught. And Paul understood that. And that's why he's saying here, look, follow my good example. Look, how about us? How comfortable are we saying to people, imitate me? Wow, that's challenging. God, help us to want to live in a way where we could say that to people. Paul says, verse 17, for this reason, I've also sent Timothy to you, who's my beloved and faithful son of the Lord, who will remind you of my, notice, ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy, a younger man who had kind of become like a son to Paul spiritually. Again, here's that father figure son dynamic. Timothy had come to appreciate this dynamic. Timothy's the epitome and example of humility because he saw Paul as a father figure. And he said, you know what? I'm not ashamed to look at him as a father figure. This guy's got some patterns. I want to learn from him. I want to learn from this spiritual father figure. And he says, that's why I could send Timothy to you as an example, because he can teach you my ways, how I live spiritually. He can share with you the things that I teach in other churches. 
And I look at Timothy there and I think, what a great example of humility. He wasn't someone who tried to behave like, look, I don't need this old guy's ways of life. I mean, I'm, I know what I'm doing now. Timothy was the exact opposite. He emulated Paul. He saw the value of realizing God gave me a good pattern in Paul. And I want to learn from that. And I want to just live it out now and pass it on to other people. And I think there's real great wisdom in that. God help us to dismiss the value, listen, of godly patterns of people who've gone before us that we could be learning from. You know, I love Jeremiah 6. It says that God said to a people living in compromise, stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is. That's what Timothy did. And Paul says, concluding verse 18, now some of you are puffed up as though I wasn't coming to you. Oh, Paul's never going to come back. Who cares anyway? But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, he says. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So Paul says, when I come, I'm going to address the arrogance of those who are puffed up there, who are doing apparently a whole lot of talking in the church of Corinth. And Paul says, look, Talking is one thing. Living by the power of God, he says, is something completely different. He says the ways of God's kingdom, look what he says, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not in word, it's in power. Paul says, I don't care what people are saying. They can say all they want, but Paul says, I know this. The kingdom of God is not about a bunch of spiritual talk. Anybody can say spiritual platitudes, but he says it's a whole other thing to live humbled under the king of kings and to live a life ruled by the king, by the power of God being at work in your life. And Paul says, that's what I'm looking for, is the power of God at work in people's lives. Look, we're all prone at times to error in our lives. What we need is to be experiencing more of the power of God in our lives. Paul says, it's not about talking. It's what's going on with the power of God in my life. He says, verse 21, what do you want? When I come, he says, shall I come to you with a rod? In other words, do you want the spanking? (laughs) Or he says, do you want to humble yourself before I get there? So I can come in a spirit of love and gentleness. You know, Paul reminds us there's an opportunity to decide how we can be dealt with. And Paul says, if you humble yourself, I'd love to be gentle and, and help redirect you But he says, if you want to remain proud and stubborn, then he says, if necessary, God will will bring the rod down and God will humble you and, and break you. And look, we're all prone to error, but yet our response to correction is crucial to our spiritual lives. You know, I would say in light of this passage this morning, what do we do in our lives when we realize our own struggle with pride? Because we all struggle with it from time to time. What are we going to do? Talk about it? Make excuses? why we're going to stay proud, or are we going to come to God and say, God, your kingdom is not about words. It's about power. And God, what I need is for you by your power to break me and to humble me and to give me your power to live in humility for the best for my life. Let's stand together.